All right, if you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the last segment of that chapter as we continue in our series, Living in the Light of Our Lord Jesus' Return. A number of years ago, I was sort of momentarily stumped by a piano tuner. The piano tuner had come into the church to, I know this is going to sound really profound, but to tune the piano. And uh, we struck up a conversation with one another, and one thing led to another, and I got into a gospel conversation. And uh, I eventually asked him, I said, are you a Christian? And he said, yes, I, I'm a Christian. I said, so tell me, when did you become a Christian? And this is where he sort of stymied me. He goes, I became a Christian 2,000 years ago on that cross where Jesus died. And all of a sudden, all of my theological pistons were firing because I sensed an element of truth into what he was saying, and yet it wasn't enough. Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Really, are you saved? When were you saved? How were you saved? How does God save anyway? The answer to how God saves is both simple and profound. As someone has said, it's a pool in which a toddler can can wade and an elephant can swim. And speaking of pools, Paul, in yet another beautiful expression of his gratitude to this church, he was not more grateful for any of the churches he wrote than he was for the Thessalonians. In fact, five times in, the, five times in these two epistles, he expresses his gratitude to God for them. And this is one of them. And in the midst of this, he takes us for a deep dive into God's pool of salvation and answers that question, how does God save? And so with that, let's just look at the first couple of verses where we left off. We're in verse 13, chapter 2. Here's what it says. But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits. That's, that's an allusion to the Old Testament, the Feast of First Fruits, when the crop would come in. They'd offer the first fruit, the first part of the crop, as a promise of the rest of the crop to come. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of the promise of those who've trusted him and their resurrection. So he's using that analogy to say, you Thessalonians coming to Jesus, you are the first fruit in this particular area of the world. Really a high praise for them. So he says, uh, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you noticed that, but all three persons of the Godhead, our triune God, are mentioned in those two verses. God mentioned at the beginning, that's Father God, the Holy Spirit who separates, and the Lord Jesus Christ at the very end. In other words, our triune God is all in on our salvation. Just as you heard in the baptismal formula when Lindsay Joe baptized Emily, I baptize you in the name, singular, because God is one, but exists in three persons, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So I often tell new Christians that if you want to get it figured out in shorthand how God saves, I always say this, the Father selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. There you go. You can leave now. I'm kidding. The Father selects, the Son saves, and the Spirit sanctifies. So if I take my own salvation, just me, Pat Nimmers, uh, and then if we look at it sort of like a time continuum, then, then from the Father's perspective, okay, uh, I was saved in eternity past. So this is a timeline here. So this is, this is what uh, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 1, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, okay? I like what Spurgeon said. I'm glad God chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me after I was born. Can I get an amen on that? So on the time continuum, eternity past, Father's perspective. From the Son's perspective, Jesus says, I was saved. And this is where the tuner got it right. When he died for my sins on the cross, I am crucified, what? With Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives in me, right? So in the time continuum, from the Son's perspective, I was saved when he died on the cross. And from the Holy Spirit's perspective, I was saved on the day, on September 6, 1982, when I repented of my sin and placed my faith in the shed blood and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Have you ever read that? So there is a time. And that's where the piano tuner got it wrong. He, he, he got it right that something happens at the cross. He didn't forget the fact of eternity past but from the Father's perspective. But the bottom line is he didn't, he didn't have a time. He didn't have a time whereby he had placed his faith in Jesus. Have you? So Paul, while thanking the Lord for these Thessalonians, teaches them, teaches us, how God saves. And so here's what we're going to do for the balance of our time. Five realities of those who come to God, okay? From this text, five realities of those who come for God, to God. This is a bit of a deep dive, but it's also a very practical one. First of all, they're previously loved by God, okay? Before you come to know Jesus, you are previously loved by God. In fact, it says that in verse 13, beloved by the Lord. See that there? So listen to this. Before God made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything, all the stars, the sun, our solar system, and hurled all of the galaxies into existence, he had set his foreknowledge, his forelove, his belovedness, his love on you who know or will know him. Some of you are saying, well, I thought salvation began with election. Well, you'd be wrong. Because it begins with love. The love of God. Beloved of God. This isn't some, just some you know, academic thing God does. It is out of his heart that he picks us out from eternity past. And aren't you glad? And really, God illustrates this in the Old Testament. Here's the Israelites. They are, uh, 
They're starting to feel a little smug, picked out by God from Abraham. They're out in the wilderness. And God explains to them why they got chosen. Check this out in Deuteronomy. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because, wait for it, the Lord loves you. You're probably thinking, that sounds like circular reasoning. Doesn't matter. God said it, I believe it. Here is the foundation of our salvation is none other than the love of God. After all, God is what? He's love. And so some of you might be thinking, well, I mean, if, if all we need is love, <laughs> if all we need is the love of God, then why doesn't God just put up a big billboard that says, I love you in the sky. I love you. Come to me. Well, first of all, he's kind of done that already, hasn't he? I mean, he didn't put a sign on a billboard, but he put a sun on a cross. And is there, I mean, I can't think of a declaration of love more greater than Jesus dying for us. Amen? And besides, how God saves takes more than his love. How God saves takes more than his love, which takes us to the second reality of those who come to know God. And that is, not only are they previously loved, but they're purposely chosen by God. And you see it right there in the text. God chose you. See it there? Now, this is interesting because we see this in other passages. I just alluded to one in Ephesians 1, verse 4, where God says, God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. That word chosen is where we get our English word election. That's where that word comes from, okay? This is a different word. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament, this word chosen. Uh, this is the word erao. Uh, uh, you don't need to worry about the pronunciation of the word, but it's different than the word election. The word erao is and the word election in Ephesians 1 verse 4. Here's what I want you to know. This is our little deep dive here. In both words, the voice that's used in the Greek, and it doesn't always, it's not always indicated in our English Bibles. There's an active voice, okay, there's a, there's a passive voice, and there is a middle voice. That's what this voice is. Listen, let me tell you what the middle voice means. Just you don't need to know Greek, you just need to know this. The middle voice means this: the person doing the acting is acting of his own accord. That's what it means. It means he, he needs no outside influence to make his selection, to make his choice. It's not like God looked down the portals of time and said, there's Randy Charlton. He looks like a good guy. I think I'll choose him. If that were the case, then it would depend on Randy. Aren't you glad it doesn't depend on you whether you're saved? God chooses of his own accord, those who will be saved. This is so cool. In fact, he's not influenced by anybody outside of himself. And in fact, this word, uh, uh, means literally means to take for oneself. Isn't that cool? So this word, to choose, means to take for oneself. So if you are saved, or you will be saved, God didn't choose you just for salvation. Did you hear what I'm saying? If you're saved, or you will be saved, God did not choose you just for salvation. He chose you for himself. Now, how cool is that? Just the other day, 
Jennifer DeKrieger, who means absolutely nothing to some of you and everything to others, uh, wrote a little uh, tribute to her husband, Todd DeKrieger. Uh, just to let you know, this uh, number of years ago, we uh, helped through a missionary agency to open up a brand new front in Togo, West Africa. Uh, hospital on the north side of Togo, and just an amazing thing. My wife and I were there for the groundbreaking. We went back again uh, just a few years ago. Waves and waves of workers have gone there from this church and built that hospital, and those servants there are just second to none. Todd DeKrieger, seen and pictured here, was like, he was like the guy. Everybody looked up to Todd as a physician and as a surgeon, and Todd would contract a virulent uh, disease, uh, sort of akin but not akin to the Ebola virus, and died. His grave is right there on the compound of the Hope Hospital. Five-year anniversary. What does, a, what does a widow say? Does she say, today's the fifth anniversary of my husband's death. My kids will never feel his touch uh, experience his guidance, be there at the graduations and marriages. <laughs> I, that's what I hear, and that's what I read half the time. Let me tell you something. This woman gets it. Here's what she wrote. Today we celebrate the life of a strong man of God, Todd DeKrieger. This morning as I spoke with a few uh, Chikasi women in our hospital, I shared that every cement block that was laid, every part of this hospital that was built, was completed with the ultimate goal that we would have a door. A door to proclaim the majesty and greatness of our God, the God who stands with us in perfect love. Our Creator's greatest desire for every human isn't renewed physical health, but a restored relationship with Him, unquote. She gets it. Instead of getting what all of us would have expected, we would have shed tears. We would hit the, hit the love sign, whatever it is. You know, say, oh, that's so precious. You know, it's too bad. They're not going to. No. She remembers what he did, gives glory to God, and sees our Creator's greatest desire for every human isn't renewed physical health, but a restored relationship with Him. That's what God does when He chooses. He doesn't just choose you to save you. He chooses you for himself, which is really cool. Augustine understood this with his famous line when he said at the very onset of his institutes, thou hast made us for, say it, thyself. O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. Now, you might be thinking, well, if God has chosen us in eternity past and he's, you know, he's, he's chosen us for himself and it's going to happen, why bother to witness? Why bother to plead with anybody to be saved? Why not just wait, watch, and wonder at the mighty hand of God to save? The answer is how God saves us takes more than his love. How God saves us takes more than his choosing. Which takes us to our third reality of those who come to know God. 
They are powerfully set apart by God. Powerfully set apart by God. And you see that in the expression, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. See that there? That's, the word sanctify means to set apart. That's why we have that in the point. God chose us so that we would be set apart for God, to be placed into his family. And the Holy Spirit of God, that third person of the Godhead, is the agent of regeneration. That is, he's the one who makes you be born again. He causes you to come under conviction. He, he places in your heart a great picture of Christ, Jesus, who died for you. He, he helps you to recognize you are a sinner separated from God and destined for an eternity of darkness and separation. He's the one who does that. And he's the one who sets you apart and places you into the family of God. That's powerful stuff, is it not? That's what he does. Puts you in the family of God. Now I talked about a, I gave a dog illustration last week. I'm, I'm, on a roll, I'm on a roll here, okay? I had plenty of dogs growing up, and we had great dogs. But this one wasn't one of them. We brought him into our family. His name was Muffin. Didn't last long. The reason Muffin didn't last long is because he bit everybody. He got away with it until he bit my dad. He bit my dad, and he was gone. It was as if he was never in the family. Listen, God didn't save you so that you would bite the hand that saved you, bite the hand that feeds you. If you have been brought powerfully into the family of God by the Holy Spirit, you are a lover of God. A lover of God's people. You don't run from God, you run to him. You're in the family now. And you might have, a, you might have quarrels, but they're lovers' quarrels because you're in the family of God. And so we can't see those who God has chosen. Or like Spurgeon said, if I, could, if I knew God was, if I, you know, if I knew everybody that God had chosen, I'd just preach to them. Otherwise, they're all getting it. We can't see who God has chosen, but we can see who he has sanctified. And to these very same people at the onset of this study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, look at these words that Paul said. He said, we know, brothers, loved by God, knows that foundation, that he has chosen you. Look what he's saying here. Paul is saying, I know God chose you. How can he even say that? Well, the verse preceding this, he was saying, God has changed you, looking at your work of faith, your labor of love. I mean, the evidence was just coming out of them that they knew, that he knew that God had chosen them. There was evidence. Where's your evidence? Is there evidence in your life that someone near to you can say, oh man, there's no question in my mind, but that you are chosen of God? Again, Spurgeon said this, had it been possible for you to have a salvation without sanctification, it would have been a curse to you instead of a blessing. And such a, if such a thing were possible, I cannot conceive of a more lamentable condition than for a man to have the happiness of salvation without the holiness of it. Happily, it's not possible. If you could be saved from the consequences of sin, but not from sin itself and its power and its pollution, it would be no blessing to you, unquote. 
That's powerful stuff there. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, if all it takes is God, the Holy Spirit, to powerfully take you or take me and set us apart and stick us into the family of God, why does he just go about doing that? Well, that's because how God saves takes more than his love. How God saves takes more than his choosing. And how God saves takes more than the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God. Which takes us to the fourth reality of those who come to God. They personally believe. They personally believe. You see that in verse 13? And belief in the truth. You have to personally believe. This is, the, this is in contrast. Remember, we just talked about the Antichrist last week. And if you look at the verse just prior to that, it says in verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I just thought of what Jesus said in John chapter 3. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in the Son is not condemned. He who does not believe is currently condemned. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the one and only Son of God. That's why. So this is what the piano tuner lacked. My brother Mike pastored a church. My brother Mike, who led me to Christ, pastored a church in northern Iowa years ago. A very, very strong reformed area very religious area. He was working with uh, individuals from uh, Reformed churches and uh, some other mainline churches. All of them religious. All of them had a theology. All, they, had, they had a head full of knowledge and a heart full of rocks, just like maybe some of you or those watching online. You got it all figured out. You can dice up the theology and everything, but your heart's not right with God. And he was having these studies with them, and he... he he, he said, listen, you, the Bible says you must be born again. That, that's a, that takes a time. There's a time. Remember, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And he came to a place with these individuals. And I remember him telling me, he says, I was leaning into one one day. He was just wrestling with it. And he asked this question. Do you have a time? That one question, do you have a time? Tripped two or three of them. Tripped them up at first, but then brought them to the realization, I have never had a time where I repented of my sin. I have never had a time where I placed my faith in Jesus. And one by one, they started getting saved. And that was 35 years ago. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a wedding. I saw all of them. They're going. They're growing. They love God. Their salvation is real. Why? Because they personally believed the gospel. If you look in verse 14, it says, to this God called you. See the word called there? That's, that, that comes up six times in these two epistles. Six times God refers to calling them. Theologians call this the efficacious call of God. That's the word for effective. When God calls you, it's effective. Uh, the reformers called this irresistible grace. You can't resist it. Or God pulls you in. It's like this. I mean, we grew up in a neighborhood just filled with kids, and we played all the time. We played, uh, we played baseball in the alley full of rocks and bare feet. I say that to all you young people. 
bunch of wimps. And we, nothing could bring us into the house. I remember at supper time, my sister Michelle would say, Pat, Bob, time to come in. We ignored her. My brother Mike stuck his head out the door. Pat, Bob, we're eating now. Get in. Nothing to it. We're in the middle of a baseball game. But when my dad stuck his head out that door, it didn't matter if the bases were loaded and I was up to bat. I dropped what I did and I went. Now, granted, out of fear. But I went. Because that was my dad calling. It was an effective call. And on September 6th, 1982, I had contemplated these things for no less than two years. I had fought, resisted, dug my heels in, but I could fight no longer. In fact, I wanted it. And I came running to God, repenting of my sin, placing my faith in Jesus, and I personally believed the gospel which is what some of you need to do today. You got head full of knowledge and a heart full of rocks. You haven't believed. You maybe you're asking, oh, God, you know, if, 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 if what he does is so irres- irresistible, and Jesus said, remember he said in John 8, he said, uh, no one can come to, the, come to me unless the Father draws them. That means to pull them in. If that's true, why did, why did you just do that? Just do it, God. Just pull them in. Because how God saves takes more than his love. It takes more than his choosing. It takes more than the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. How God saves takes more than his divine, pulling, irresistible grace power. You say, wow, well, what? then what are we missing here? If God loves, if he chooses, if he sets apart, if he pulls us in, what could possibly be missing? What's the missing link? And the answer is somebody to tell them the truth. And the last reality of those who come to God is this. They are presented with the gospel. And you see that there. He says, you came, you came, look at the end of verse, uh, middle of verse 14. To this you were called through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our gospel. By implication, somebody presented it to you. I don't care if you're young are old. Somebody brought you the truth. If you would testify that somebody spoke to you about Jesus, would you just raise your hand right now? That's a lot of hands. Think about that. There are a couple of very interesting narratives in the book of Acts that have always intrigued me. Here's one. Acts 16, Paul is trying to go over here. Holy Spirit says, you're not going that way. He tries to go over here. Holy Spirit stops him here, stops him again. And then suddenly, he has a vision of a man from Macedonia. He comes to Paul and says, come over here and tell us. Come over here. That, would that be compelling? Yes, it would be very compelling. But I was thinking... I mean, what if Paul had said to him, uh, 
this is pretty crazy. Why don't you tell them? I mean, after all, they're going to listen to a vision. Now, he doesn't do that. And it almost sounds sort of silly, doesn't it? But, I mean, wouldn't you be moved by a vision? Go like this. Of course I would be. But look, that's not how God saves. That's not how God saves. Here's another one. Maybe a little more familiar. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. That means he's over 100 men. Very important figure. Highly religious. The first four verses tell us that. He's so religious. He prays to God, helps the Jews. You read these first four verses, you think, he's a Christian, but he's not. He's not a Christian. And he prays to God always, it says. And, And an angel appears to this guy. An angel from God appears to Cornelius and says, Cornelius, uh, God's tuning in. He's listening to you. Here's the deal. Send somebody down to Joppa. Get Simon Peter, help, and, and he'll come here and tell you the truth. Now, why did the angel just tell Cornelius how to be saved? He's right there. I mean, he's got his attention. Why doesn't the angel just tell him to trust Jesus? Let's make this simple. It wasn't his job. That wasn't his job. That's my job. That's your job if you know Christ as your Savior. God saves through his people. And that's why Romans chapter 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they've not heard? How are they going to believe in him unless somebody is sent? Someone has to go. That's the way God designed it. The stories abound of what's happening, and so, many, so much so, I, have, I, I absolutely believe them, though I can't verify one of them. That in some of these closed, especially these Muslim countries where men are being moved by God because he's chosen them from the foundation of the world. And these stories are crazy. Stories of these guys having visions of Jesus or an angel or Isa, the, the, uh, the Arabic word for Jesus, comes to them and then directs them to an embedded missionary who figures he's so stealthy nobody knows he's there until the guy comes and knocks on his door. This, these, are, this, these testimonies are out there, where the guy's standing there going to the missionary who thinks he's hidden, hey, um, I just had a, a vision of Isa, and he told me to come to you to tell me how to be saved. If that doesn't illustrate the fact that this is incumbent upon us, I don't know what, what does. Let me ask you, how important is it that we have a good theology of evangelism? I'd say really important. In fact, a good theology of evangelism is what began the modern missionary movement 300 years ago almost. It's actually the late 1700s when William Carey, a Baptist guy who caught a vision from studying the Bible to take the gospel to the nations, presented it to a bunch of Baptist curmudgeon theologians. I don't think they saw themselves as curmudgeons, but they were. He presented his case to them. 
in the middle of presenting his passion for, to go and that they would send people, say, they would send him and other missionaries to other lands such as India where he'd go. Someone piped up, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do without consulting you or me. What a fool. Try to punk Kerry with that line. Praise God, Kerry ignored it. And thus began the modern missionary movement. There are missionaries all around the world today because of William Carey, who understood the means by which God takes what he starts in eternity past through his love and his choosing and using the Holy Spirit and his tractor beam power to pull people into the kingdom of God, into the family of God, is you, is me. A five-year-old gets it. Can you? How do I know a five-year-old gets it? I'll tell you. Just the other day, a five-year-old in our church came to her mother. After hearing some of the sermons and listening to her teachers, Here's what she said. Mom, I'm going to make a list of people I want to tell about Jesus. One for each day, but I can't write, so I'll just draw them. (laughs) And she did. One for every day of the week. Do you think those of you who have a genuine relationship with Jesus, could pray and then actually talk to one person in seven days? Hmm? The five-year-old, she gets it. This is how God saves. It's a pool. Shallow enough for a toddler to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim. The missing link in someone's salvation might just be you. Somebody presented the gospel to you. Would you commit this morning to present the gospel to somebody? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the awesomeness of your plan that takes us back into eternity past, to the place of the cross, and to the time in which many of us here and watching online trusted in Jesus. And right now, dear friend, if you know Jesus, you just thank him for that time. God pulled you in. And while you're at it, would you thank God for that person? who came into your life, or persons that came into your life, the very conduit from God himself to deliver the goods to you, would you thank him for that? And then would you commit, would you make a commitment, Christian, would you make a commitment right here, right now, to be, to have the heart of that five-year-old and say, God, I know you're going to save those you've picked out through your love and power. You'll save them. You might even save them in spite of me. Yeah, you will. But God, would you use me? 
in obedience, would you help me to be obedient? Would you give me the heart that would look for those who are lost? Can you pray that? And would you give me a mouth to speak up the truth, speak the truth? Some of you here or watching online have heads full of knowledge and hearts full of rocks. Because you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, would you do so now? Would you believe the gospel? Turn from your sin and trust him as your savior. You can do it right now in your heart. And he'll change that stony heart into a tender one for his glory put you in his family. It's a good place to be. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.